Welcome to Bleacher Blum, a sports podcast for baseball fans. Now, the current master of banter for the Houston Astros television broadcast team, Blummer. Here we are. We're headed to the bleachers. They are opening up, and Tuttle and I are hanging out. It has been a very good weekend for obvious reasons. The Houston Astros are going to the World Series, and we are recording here on October 22nd, which is opening day of the World Series. Tonight is game one. You've got Garrett Cole going against Max Scherzer in an epic matchup, which I think is going to be fantastic. And obviously on this podcast with my connections to the Astros, and we've obviously got Tuttle turned around. He is an Astro fan now. It's even seeping into the family with one of his daughters going to school today with an Altuve jersey on, which is great to hear. But uh, we will talk about plenty about the Astros and Nationals matchup heading into the heart of this podcast because there is plenty to break down, plenty to talk about. But we are all in a very good mood because the Astros are in the World Series for the second time in three years, trying to match what the what the San Francisco Giants did a couple of years back going every, every even year. The Astros have turned into the every odd year team going in 17 and winning, going in 19, hopefully trying to scra- scratch out a win, but it's going to be a tough road. Tuttle, welcome to the podcast. You've been doing a phenomenal job carrying this podcast day in, day out, week in, week out. How have you been over the weekend? You had a big weekend, man. Yeah, I think I'm only going to turn 50 once, so we're just going to stick with that. You know, Went to Vegas for the weekend. and uh... Should we sing... Did we forget to sing you happy birthday? Oh, on the podcast, uh, I did not sing myself happy yeah. birthday, but let's let's not go there. Let's have uh, let's have the mailbag listeners sing us happy <laughs> birthday or something like that. But uh, you know, had a wonderful weekend. But like I said, I only want to turn fifty once. So, and I think that's I think that's doable. So, I don't think fifty one will be celebrated <laughs> with the same fervor. But uh, yeah, had a, had a wonderful weekend. Um, and uh, yeah, like you said, I, I think becoming an Astros fan is uh, just par for the course doing this podcast you just kind of get inundated with all the information and obviously you have an affinity for them and that's you know a lot of our loyal listeners and downloaders are astros fans as well so it's hard not to be enamored engaged and enlightened by all the astros fans out there no it's a lot of fun it's a good time to be an astro fan because a lot of them that do tweet us or respond to us always or have begun to call this the golden era of astros baseball which is really saying something Because the 80s had some great teams. The 90s, late 90s, early 2000s had some great teams. But this is definitely the golden era of Astros baseball with them going back to the World Series for the second time in three years. I hope you don't get tired of hearing that because I enjoy saying it because I am very grateful to be a part of this organization and be able to watch these guys play day in, day out. But as frustrated as I get about not calling the game, I am very happy to be a fan of this team and be able to show up to these ball games, high five everybody on the concourse and see some of the bleacher blum shirts rolling around. I personally am going to be wearing my GFC shirt tonight because Garrett Cole is on the bump. So I'm going to be representing him. I got mine yesterday and I hope to see a couple more out there. If you see me and you're wearing your uh, GFC shirt or bleacher blums, make sure that we have a chance to take a picture. I'm always more than happy to do that. We'll tag you in some of those posts and make sure that we start spreading the word because Tuttle's right. We've been getting a great deal of downloads. A lot of people going to the website, bleacherblums.com. They've been listening to the podcast, downloading, subscribing, listening to the archives. The numbers continue to go up and they have been great for us. We're enjoying it. 
But the one thing we've really seen a jump in and which has been kind of cool is we always encourage the interaction. We've always encouraged the conversation in, in, a, in a polite, calm, understanding way where we can have that conversation and that banter a little bit. And we have a mailbag tab on our bleacherblums.com website and Tuttle, man, we've, we've been doing pretty good as far as responses. And I know we've got a couple more for this podcast right now. Honestly, I, I feel like the bulk of our podcasts, especially doing it bi-weekly now, have been the mailbag, which is great because it gives us topics to uh, to discuss. And obviously, you and I see eye to eye on a lot of things. But, you know, there's some different perspective out there, whether it be a pitcher hitter or me being 90 and you being 40, you know, closer to the game. You know, that has, has a lot to do with it. <laughs> I want. I had a question for you. This is not mailbag, but it's just funny because I, you know, Giants fan. They won in ten. They won in twelve. They won in fourteen. Obviously, the Astros last year got beat by the Red Sox, the eventual champion. So that was okay. But you know, going seventeen, nineteen. I'm just thinking now. I'm kind of in the uh, the Astros know here and in the uh, you know the environment or the atmosphere. All the Astros fans. I don't think they could wait till 2021 to win a World Series. I I would like to see like next year as we get this thing going how patient they would be to be like, well, we won it in 17, we won it in 19. So this year we, we could take a year off. I don't, I don't feel like that's how that would go, but let's, uh, let's worry about that after this one. Huh? Yeah. That's the only thing you can do is worry about it after this one, but it would be interesting. I'm with you in the sense that the culture is really changed here in the city of Houston, where it's been, wow, we've had some good teams, but the other team played so much better and knocked us out of the playoffs. Now we're in the position where the Astros are as good as they are. They have the World Series championship. And, and I also think it's great, too, because they have won the World Series championship. And not only is the team not content with it, the city isn't either. They love having the spotlight on them down here, much like the team does. And they want to be recognized for the greatness of the city. They want to be recognized for the greatness of the team. And I, that will be a lot of fun to talk about. It, you know, if, if they do get to the point where they win a, this World Series how soon after that will they start talking about 2020? Can they repeat? Because they have a lot of guys coming back. Hopefully they're healthy. It's going to be really interesting. And I agree with you in the sense that there has been that impatience that builds up because I think a lot of fans and a lot of these regions understand how hard it is to win a World Series. So you kind of jump on that bandwagon and maybe put the pedal to the metal a little bit and say, let's win as many as we possibly can now. And if they don't, you're a little bit frustrated, but th this is the golden era of Houston Astros baseball. Yeah, you would certainly hope that uh, that they would be patient, but I, I have a feeling if they win, you know, in six games here, while the champagne is still being, you know, spewed out of the bottle, I have a feeling somebody would mention next year already, like, hey, this is going to be a dynasty, you know, how, hey, we'll worry about that when we get there. But I, I have a feeling it wouldn't go 24 hours without that being mentioned. So speaking of that, here we are into the mailbag. Jason W. asks, Steve Sparks seemed pretty hammered during the postgame of Game 6. Was he really drunk or just excited by the moment? How much are the interviewers allowed to imbibe during the postgame show? Blummer, I know you've been a part of this from both sides. I have. And yes, there is alcohol aplenty down there. Yes, Steve Sparks will entertain a beer every now and then. Uh, at the same time, I think there's a little uh, art artistic... Uh, influence on that where he might be acting a little more buzzed than he normally is. And I know that he, he calls it wet, I believe, or oily. And I think the oily aspect of it may be enhanced by himself. 
I'm not sure if it actually has anything to do with the libations itself. But to be honest, we we I have actually held a beer and interviewed, especially this uh, clinching of the American League West. But yes, there there is availability, and some of the clubhouse and some of the staff will yes hand you a beer in the process of the interview. <laughs> I believe the words you were looking for are creative license, right? He takes yes. a creative license, right? That, that, that is exactly it. Thank you for filling yeah. that in. Yeah, that's so exactly what it is. He's acting a little, is what you're saying. Yeah, and Sparky's got a personality anyways. He already has all of the, the, the quick, witted comments, but then you put him in an atmosphere of complete joy and chaos, he maybe spices it up a little bit. Yeah. Gotcha. And you know what? He, that's, he doesn't, you know, like you said, he doesn't get to be seen on TV as regularly, so... <laughs> The, the yeah. fact that you get to see him out there. He's like John Lovitz acting. Yeah. All right. I said that you didn't. So we'll move on to the next question without throwing him under the bus anymore. Jimmy C says, how hard is it for Jordan to get his swing back? Now here, I don't know if this guy's a hitting coach, but he says, I notice he's having a small mechanical issue with the swing that is messing up his timing. <laughs> Maybe we got to get Jimmy C into the dugout or on the phone line too. Yeah, Jordan is struggling. I think the pinch hit, he got pinch hit for in game six by, a play, I believe, Aledmus Diaz. And, you know, the when you're playing in these playoff situations where you're under the microscope, things are obviously exaggerated and you start to struggle you start to notice a little bit more. During the regular season, if you go over 12, over 20, you're kind of like, well, he lost 10 points off his average. He'll figure it out. There's plenty of season left. And that's the thing you don't have in the playoffs is plenty of season left. But the Astros have extended the season into the World Series. A.J. Hinch has come out and said, Jordan will be my guy. But I think that pinch hit uh, experience for Jordan may have been the bottom. And that's where I think when you hit the bottom, you stand up and you start to fight back a little bit. So hopefully that's a situation where Jordan goes, okay, it can't get any worse. I've got to go out there and compete. And with AJ Hinch saying, I've got Jordan's back. He's going to be my DH. It's basically a congratulatory slap on the ass and go get Max Scherzer. So you kind of, you're picking your poison in the sense that you've got the confidence of the manager, but at the same time, you've got to go out and face one of the best pitchers in baseball. And that's another uh, reason why the playoffs are so harsh. If you're not going well and you head into the playoffs, you're facing the best of the best and you just get suppressed. It feels like you're drowning. I agree that there are slight mechanical issues. I think with Jordan, uh, he could be standing a little more upright for me. I think the posture is, is an issue for him. But when you panic, the speed, the speed of the game gets incredibly fast. And that's where the issue sets in. And what I see is Jordan is trying to hit the ball out of the pitcher's hand. So at release point, He's trying to hit that pitch. He's not letting it come to him like we saw during the regular season. And that's tough to do is to, to slow the game down and trust that ball getting deep and trusting your hands. But if he's able to do it, it could be devastating for the Nationals if he gets right. There's three things for me, and you hit on two of them, or all three of them, actually. But one of them, like you said, we've talked about this on prior podcasts. He, in a 162-game season, this is who you are. So do they do advanced scouting? Sure they do. That's great. But you're also facing the third, fourth, and fifth starters of some teams. You know, the intimidation factors there. So you're facing, uh, for lack of a better word, because these are all big league pitchers, but a little more watered down pitching. You're 
feeling good, you're confident. And as you said, you're 0 for 12 doesn't look bad because you missed three games and then you hit two home runs in the next game. And now that just all gets into the wash. So now you're in the playoffs. The advanced scouting is more intense. You know, the advanced scouting is, is everything. These guys tell you where the holes are, where the weaknesses are. And not only are these the best pitchers, but they're also the guys that can, that can pitch to the scouting report, right? Scherzer's not a one pitch pitcher. He's got four pitches. We know Jordan's struggling with ABC. So guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to go out there and throw 97 and I'm going to give you your weaknesses. So, and, and then the last piece, which you talked about slowing down the game is the mental part. And we talked about this with closers on the past few podcasts, but the mental part of any sport at this level is paramount. It, I mean, I, to me, it's a top, it's the tip of the spear. You're at the top of the mountain and it has to be, it has to be, you have to be in the right state of mind. So if you're letting that 0 for 12 in the playoffs get magnified and get to you and you're facing the best pitchers and you're not mentally ready to kind of handle it, guess what? You're going to slump and I don't really care, you know, who you are, you're going to slump. And I think the slowing the game down, I, I've really been impressed with Michael Brantley, never really watched him. Uh, I remember hearing about him coming out of uh, college. I think he went to Virginia or Maryland. Um, University of Virginia, I want to say, but I don't even remember now. But Michael Brantley, his approach, his hands are so quiet. You know, he reminds me of uh, Alou, Moises Alou. Like his hands are so quiet. He's letting the ball travel so far. And he does not care. I think they mentioned on the broadcast, if he's 0-2, his pulse and his, you know, everything is the same as if he was 2-0 or 1-1 or uh, anyway. So... Hopefully, Jordan can uh, kind of turn it around, but also take some cues from from Michael Brantley. That's a good guy to watch, actually. And you know what's cool about that, too, in just talking about that and maybe going a little bit further in depth on some of these conversations. I would do this a lot when we were facing a tough right-handed pitcher. I usually hit, well, in 2002 and three, I hit uh, in between Craig Biggio and Jeff Bagwell. So I had to wait a little bit to see how some of the other left-handed hitters were being pitched. But later in my career, when I was hitting sixth, seventh, behind guys like Lance Berkman, I would watch Lance's at-bats and see how they pitched him and maybe attributed some of the approach that they had against him to my at-bats too and see if they pitched us the same. And it wouldn't be a bad idea for Jordan not only to watch the mechanics and the patience of a Michael Brantley and the quietness of the hands, but also to watch how they're pitching him too, maybe get an idea. But by now, like you're talking about, by now he should have a – Jordan should have a real good idea between himself – and the guys around him, how they're pitching him. And now it's just a matter of laying off pitches that we see him chase up out of the zone or the sliders we see him chase down out of the zone and really hone in on that uh, strike zone and cut down on the chase. Yeah, and, and just to finish this uh, question, this thought, it, I would say to you, I was, you know, I never really participated in extensive scouting. When I got up to AAA, we started doing like, uh, we would look at averages and hits and, you know, pitching and scouting reports and all that kind of stuff, but not to the depth, the depth where now they have, you know, the shift on and this guy doesn't hit this pitch or that pitch. We didn't have the resources and it was really more about our strengths and getting us, you know, kind of where we needed to be to move to the next level. But I would tell you this, uh, as a right-handed sinker ball pitcher, I would throw a lot of hard sinkers and sliders to righties. But to lefties, I would throw a lot of hard sinkers and change-ups off that same pitch. So to your point about Bagwell, or not Bagwell, but um, Berkman, you and Berkman were maybe not the same hitter, but you're both left-handed hitters facing the starter. His tendency would maybe, you know, like you said, to go more with, all right, this guy's going to be hard sinker change-up versus hard sinker slider to me because he doesn't want to go down and in. And 
you know, occasionally you mix in the breaking ball, but like you said, you can get a lot of tells or a lot of, you know, intel just by watching the lineup, you know, aside from scouting reports as well. All right, I believe Sherry B submitted a question before. So Sherry, uh, again, she's on. Uh, Hi, I've always wondered what does it physically feel like to pitch six or seven innings of professional baseball? I mean, how does your arm feel? I've thrown a ball as hard as I possibly can, and I'm sure it wasn't more than 20 miles an hour, and my arm wanted to fall off. (laughs) Then it hurt for days later. How does an actual pitcher's arm feel? Does it start burning in March and finally stop in December? Does it just go numb? What do you do after a game? I want details. So I'll take the lead on this one. And I know you can speak to how your arm felt after 162 games of taking ground balls and firing it across the infield as well. I, I hate to say this, but I, I, I can answer many of those questions. But the simplicity of it is this is kind of what you're conditioned to do. If you started you know, pitching in high school or college and you trained for that, I mean, certainly your arm felt better you know, certain days of the year and certain times of the year. But typically, if you're training correctly and you have a routine, we've talked about this prior as well. This is a game of habits and hopefully good habits. But if you, you know, you throw 120 pitches on one day, the next day you, you know, you do a lot of cardio stuff and you flush it out and you might ice your arm and you take it easy. The day after that, you throw again. And, you know, I mean, you'll just have a routine that works. My arm Felt better on certain days than others. I actually felt better as a reliever um, because I didn't have so many pitches or so much volume on my arm and then have to ice it and then kind of wind down and then crank it back up. If you could throw, as you said, I think the limit now they like in the in the playoffs doesn't matter, but like 30 pitches. So if you throw 30 pitches one night, the next day you come in, you know, you run, do some cardio, do some long toss. You could probably throw again that day. So I, I just think, Guys at this level now have been conditioned to do it. And you work on your mechanics all the time. You work on taking care of your arm. You work on, you know, all the little things that make it, uh, I don't know, make it easier for you to go out and do that. So I, I don't know if that's probably an oversimplified answer, but typically your arm felt better on certain days and worse on others. Obviously, there's always a difference between uh, pain, I'm sorry, injury, like pain and soreness, I always said. So are you sore? Or you have pain, right? As that, oh gosh, this is an injury. And then after the game, typically, like I said, I, I did used to ice my arm, but the most important thing for me was the flush the day after, like a good, you know, 45 minute hour cardio session to uh, get the arm kind of lubed up and loose. But I don't know. Did you have some experience with dead arm or anything like that as a, as a position player? Of course. It, it's extremely hard, but it, to Tuttle's point, you you condition yourself you know it's like sprinters as opposed to marathoners you know those relievers might be the sprinters that go out there and just fire 30 pitches as hard as they possibly can to get the outs and then their recovery is a little more abbreviated and abrupt as opposed to a starter who goes out there and runs that marathon one day and throws 120 pitches so it takes them two three days to really get back their arm back in shape but they allow it two days to recover before they get out there. I know some guys, and I think it was the, I want to say it was the Atlanta Braves that would go out there and long toss literally the next day. So they almost didn't want it to sit for too long and have some of that that sedentary movement. They just wanted to keep the arm moving and two Tuttle's point, flushing it, just keeping the blood flowing through there because it's really the blood that stays in there that really causes the issue. So if you're able to flush it like uh, Tuttle's talking about, whether it be through blood flow, through cardio, or having very good massage therapists like these guys have now. But every guy's different. 
And I know that they have their own routines, but the program is keep that thing moving, stretch it out, maintain that length on it. For me, it was, it was hard because I could go a day without throwing a baseball except back to the pitcher. And then all of a sudden, two days later, I've got to ramp one up and fire it across the diamond on a backhand play with, you know, somebody like, you know, Juan Pierre running where he's just booking down the line. And I've got to let that thing go. And all of a sudden it's like, you know, and I feel that strain for the next week. But, you know, it, there, it was easier for me to fight through it because I could change arm angles. I didn't rely on velocity, movement. I just had to get the baseball to first base before the base runner. And if I had to submarine it, throw it over the top or run it over there, I found a way to get that done. But there were, there were times, I, I would say at least, man, at least once a year where there were moments where I thought I was going to throw up because my arm hurt so bad. But eventually you break through that and uh, you finish the season. But, uh, you know, it's all maintenance. It's like your car. Just keep, keep, keep the oil lubed up in that thing and you're ready to go. And, of course, I don't know how old Sherry is, but now at this age, like to get on a mound right now and throw three innings, that would be really difficult. I think, you know, when you start at 17 or 18 or 19 and you're pitching, very similar to your, uh, your switch hitting story. I mean, this is what you do. You have practice every day. You go out, you work at it, you train at it. I mean, I can't tell you how many, I mean, some of it's boring. Spring training got to be really boring, PFP, but you did. I mean, if you spent time with a pitching coach, you were working on your mechanics. You were trying to tweak things here and there. And I think when you're focused on it and it's your, you know, it's your means for providing for your family, I think it's a lot easier to go out and throw six or seven innings on your arm because you've trained to do that and you've conditioned to do it. If I got up right now out of this chair and tried to fire a ball around, I would have very similar, like you said, that one day where you try and fire across the diamond to get Juan Pierre sprinting down the, I might have a blowout. So um, I should have bunched these questions better or pre-read them, but here's another Yordan question. It's a little different. So uh, this is from Andy C. So what do you think the best strategy for using Yordan uh, will be for games three, four, and five in a National League park with no DH? So obviously we talked about him getting back in the lineup, but now this, this question's a little more strategy-based. During the season, it seemed like Alvarez would play left field, but given his recent hitting struggles, do you think they'll just go without him in the starting lineup? And, you know, that may depend on, as you said, here's your face and Scherzer tonight. Let's see how you do. No, that may have something to do with it, too. You know, I think it's going to be interesting when you do get to the uh, National League ballpark. And that's probably something that somebody else, need, you know, the fans need to know, too, is when you're playing in the American League park, you have the DH. When you travel in the World Series to a National League park, you play by National League rules. So, therefore, the pitcher is in. And if you go back to some of the archives that uh, we were talking about when Zach Greinke was signed by the Houston Astros, we said, hey, start Zach Greinke in game three because it's going to be a National League park. And sure enough, here we are. We're going to see Zach Greinke uh, pitching in game three. He will have an at-bat where he's already got three home runs on the season. But I think when you go into that National League park, a couple of things are very interesting is that Zach Greinke is an option for a pinch hitter because he can bunt if, if A.J. goes to a bullpen type day like we saw uh, in game six. And then Jordan is a guy, depending on how he goes in these games, is he an option in the outfield? Because I really the only option for Jordan, I think, to play the field in a National League ballpark in the World Series is if he's swinging the bat better than. Josh Reddick, Kyle Tucker, or a Jake Marisnik. That's really the only option I see for him. And I would imagine, we haven't seen the Game 3 starter announced for the Nationals, but I believe it's going to be Patrick Corbin. And Patrick Corbin is a left-handed pitcher. So that might be a Jake day where you see Jake Marisnik in center 
George Springer in right, and then Michael Brantley in left. And, you know, game four would be interesting because it might be Anibal Sanchez, and then you have to make that decision. But for right now, if it was game three, I would guarantee you that Jordan Alvarez would be a viable option as a pinch hitter off the bench. And I think that's how AJ is going to play it throughout this series when they have those three games in Washington, D.C. Great. Um, I, I would, you know, I, I don't know anything about the strategy, so um, that's not going to, I think you're, I think it'll have a lot more to do with, to your point, I think it'll have a lot more to do with how he performs here in the, uh, the initial part of the series, like, you know, in the American League Park. Um, and then after that, they'll have to wait and see, but I, I think you're right. Um, let's see, I had a, another, let's see, I guess there's one more question here. Um, this is statements and questions all thrown into one. So this is the the fireworks of the mailbag here. Um, Danny P. Danimal sent this in. How about that? Danimal. Uh, World Series bound. Anyways, I'm caught up with y'all's podcast. Can't wait for more. A couple of questions. Would y'all consider adding a premium or upper level membership to y'all's podcast? Example, there's another podcast out there charges $5 a month membership that allows a small percentage off merch and uh, some extra small podcasts like Tales from the Bench to members. And it'll help the building of y'all's podcast and open up to future endeavors. Hey, we're open to anything, but I, I just thought I'd throw that out there because business business ideas. I like the way you think, Danimal. And then uh, I'm in SoCal, transplanted Texan. Would y'all consider, he's got a few y'alls in here too. I got to practice my y'alls. Would y'all consider having a couple of live podcasts in the Anaheim area when the Strohs visit next season? Small meet and greet and... With West Coast Stroh's family, obviously at a brewery. Uh, obviously at a brewery, he says. Anyways, I added more y'alls than typical so that I can hear Wuddle Tuttle say. Love it, guys. Thank you, and keep it up. Go Astros. That's outstanding. We're always open to options. And to be honest, that's something I didn't even think of. And maybe that's how we do encourage some of that uh, premium membership or maybe that next level membership where you do get a little more maybe personal with Tuttle and I. And we can offer some opportunities when we are in Anaheim to go out there and see a couple of you and actually entertain you face to face. But I like the idea of making tales from the bench, maybe something a little bit more special or maybe something we can get a little more in depth on as far as some of those stories, because there's a couple out there right now. They're just, they're just good stories, encouraging stories. But if you really want to get behind the scenes, maybe Tuttle and I can maybe give you a little bit extra effort and maybe do some research and really dig on some of the topics and give you maybe a little more premium content. We're trying to give you everything we can right now, but we're always willing to give you a little bit more. And like Tuttle said, Tuttle's the business side of this uh, podcast. I'm more of just the, the voice box that comes at you and tries to initiate the, the, the broadcast aspect of this thing. But hey, if we, if we get more responses, you know, if, if you're listening to this podcast and that intrigues you, tweet at us at real David Tuttle or at Blummer27, or just go to our bleacherblums.com, get in the mailbag and say, yeah, I'm very interested about that because if, you know, it's, it's gotta be the supply and demand, right? If there's demand for it, we'll supply it. Excellent. Economics 101. And I appreciate the suggestions. And of course the mailbag is, uh, the mailbag just keeps filling up. I mean, we're just filling up the whole podcast with mail questions. So that's going to do it for today. And uh, you talked about some publicity, Blummer. I wanted to hear about your, or your experience yesterday because I got on Twitter and saw our T-shirts on Twitter on MLB, uh, on MLB Network. What the? Yeah, it was interesting because Intentional Talk hosted by Chris Rose and Kevin Millar on MLB Network. Uh, I know a lot of fans uh, have seen that show. They do a great job. They make it fun. They make it interactive. They get in depth on some of the numbers. 
And I actually got this request maybe about a week and a half ago and the timing didn't work out. And they reconnected with me and saw that I could do it yesterday. And I did. And my anticipation when I get these phone calls or these requests to be on some of these shows, I always assume that it's going to be about the Houston Astros for obvious reasons. I know I have intimate knowledge of what the Astros are doing this season because I cover them. And then I get on the show and the first thing they show me is, you know, my first big league home run. They talk about the first series I had in Colorado. So all of a sudden it turned into me and it got a little awkward for me because, you know, I'm like, wait a minute, the Astros are in the World Series. I'm not in the World Series. Uh, you know, and they tear the scab off the 05 situation with the home run against the Astros. And we had a lot of fun with that. And so I don't know exactly what's coming at me. And the next thing I know, they pop up a shirt from uh, at Ram Shirts on Instagram showing our T-shirts. And it was the woman's V-neck. And it was kind of funny because Millar brings it up and goes, hey, Blummer. He goes, is this mandatory attire in the Blum household? <laughs> you know, and I said, heck yeah. And I, and I told him the funny story about how we got the T-shirts out there. They were, you know, just the men crew neck style. And the five women in my house are going, do you expect us to wear that? Where's the woman's V-neck? We need a little more, you know, slimming size here. And I went, oh, man. So, of course, yes, it, it all ties into the Blum household and getting some of those women T-shirts out there. But Ram shirts on Instagram and CrushCityTees.com is where we get these T-shirts. And, yes, we did get national coverage yesterday on Intentional Tuck. Thank you, Chris Rose and Kevin Millar. They're awesome. And uh, let's give the uh, Crush City Tees a shout out. So Ram Shirts, obviously the parent company, Crush City Tees. We all know that's our uh, place to go for Bleacher Blums t-shirts. Actually, they're the creator. You want to go to bleacherblums.com to get your Bleacher Blums t-shirt. Crush City Tees, place to go for custom H-Town baseball tees, direct-to-garment machine. They can make your idea a reality with no minimums, no setup fees, and unlimited colors. They also provide embroidery, screen printing, design printed in Houston, crushcitytees.com. And at Ram Shirts on Twitter as well. You can follow them. So we're super thankful that uh, Blum has some notoriety and the ability to have his uh, daughters give us some creative license for the uh, the female shirts. You got to get those up ASAP. But uh, we got some national pub yesterday, and hopefully we can roll with that as we go. Yeah, I know it's been going good. And a couple of people have already uh, tweeted me some pictures of their excitement for wearing the GFC shirt that's also available on both those websites for Garrett freaking Cole. We'll keep it clean right now. Garrett freaking Cole going for the Astros. Probably going to pump, pump a couple of hundos in there. So let's get into this a little bit. It is the Houston Astros against the Washington Nationals, who used to be the Montreal Expos. So that is one of two teams who had not made a World Series appearance in Major League Baseball history, and now it's down to one. The Seattle Mariners are the only franchise currently that has not been to the World Series with the Nationals going. So this will be the Nationals slash Expos first appearance in a Major League Baseball World Series. And you go back to 1994, the strike shortened season. I believe they were 74 and 40 at the at the break, maybe, or just past the All-Star before that uh, strike ended the season. That was probably their best hand getting to the World Series. But here they stand. The Washington Nationals and Astros getting ready to have their first pitch tonight in game one. And a couple of roster moves for the Astros. Well, actually, just one roster move, to be honest, because I, I brought up with uh, Tuttle that Miley is not on the World Series roster. He was not on the Championship Series roster. Uh, Chris Davinsky is the new addition for Brian Abreu. Brian Abreu pitched in that game one for the Houston Astros, had, had real issues trying to find the zone. The arm looked fine, but I think the, the magnitude of the moment got to Abreu when he got a little bit uh, wild. 
And again, this Brian Abreu has nothing to do with the stuff. It has everything to do with the moment. He's young. He's learning. Uh, this, I believe, even though he's scuffled, it's only going to enhance his opportunity later with the experience. You know, the whole thing, if it doesn't kill you at all, you, you know, you, you can make it work for you. But Chris Davinsky has been put on the World Series roster after not being on the ALCS roster. Do you think that's a good move, Tuttle? Do you have any concerns? I mean, it's pretty much the same thing, except for Abreu taken off and Davinsky put on there. Yeah, you know, we, we've talked about this extensively, and we I think we agree on this typically. I mean, you're trying to marry talent and experience, and, you know, with the world title on the line, I think you bring up Miley. I, I forgot he wasn't on the championship series roster. I know he was on the division series roster, but all in all honesty, um, he kind of, I mean, being the third, well, fourth starter once they got Granky, I know he struggled at the end of the year, but really there isn't a place on the team right now for a long, uh, long guy, right? A long lefty, like it doesn't matter. So I, I think it has more to do with need than it does ability. Obviously, if he was throwing no hitters at the end of the year, they would probably find a way to stick him in there. But the fact that he's, you know, not an overpowering pitcher and he needs his stuff and he's kind of now he would be the long guy. It actually just makes sense that he just doesn't fit a role right now on the team, even though he was integral in the 162-game season. And we can use that same analogy that we had with uh, with Jordan, right? You know, 0 for 12 in the postseason looks a lot different than, you know, so look at Miley's numbers over the year. But if Miley has two bad starts in the championship series and the World Series, guess what? I mean, maybe no world title. So that makes sense. And then Devo has some experience. You already pointed out Abreu's shortfalls or shortcomings. Typically, he has great stuff, like most young guys that they call to the big leagues, and it's just about gaining that experience. And I think, uh, you know, Josh James learned that. Josh James was lights out in the against the Yankees his first outing, came into a 6-1 game, and all of a sudden the 6-3, and you're like, great, he throws 98-99, and nobody cares. You better get dudes out. You better be confident. You better get it done. And I think, I'm sure AJ just, you know, kind of looked at his crystal ball or his tarot cards and said, I'd much rather... If I'm going to lose the game or I'm going to take a chance, let's take it on Devo, who has some experience and some comfort level with the current, you know, the current roster as it's constructed. Yeah, I agree. Devo does have some of that experience and he has probably kept himself in great shape to have the ability to come back on this World Series roster. So he will be in that bullpen and offer another option for A.J. Hinch. And the Nationals rotation is going to go Max Scherzer, Steven Strasburg for the first two. I'm not sure how they're going to go three and four, but uh, just for me personally, I would assume that it's going to be Patrick Corbin in game three, Anibal Sanchez in game four. For the Houston Astros, you've got Cole, Verlander, Granke in that order. And then I would imagine that game four, after what we saw in game six for the Astros clinch game, going with the bullpen outing, starting with Brad Peacock and then coming in with Urquidy and obviously several others out of that bullpen, I would imagine that game four against Anibal Sanchez in in Washington, D.C., will be that bullpen day. And it will be interesting to see how A.J. is able to do that. I wonder, you know, if he, if he starts Peacock, will he allow Peacock to go one time through the order? Or will he allow him to pitch as long until his, his spot in the batting order comes up? Because I would imagine his first at bat, there's going to be a pinch hitter. And then you put Urquidy, a guy like Urquidy in there, maybe give him one at bat, and you get a little more length out of him and get to the back end of the bullpen. But as far as rotations are concerned, this, I believe, for me, and the research that I've done is going to be where the, the 
the World Series is won or lost is in that starting rotation because you look at Scherzer and Strasburg, you've got to beat one of those two. If you look at Colin Verlander, you've got to beat one of those two. And then after that, you try and win as many ball games as you can. But those first two for each of these teams is very good. Do you have do you have an idea of who you're leaning towards as far as the better rotation in this World Series at all? Yeah, in all honesty, I, I kind of think the uh, the the Nationals have it set up better, and maybe that's I'm I'm a little uh, jaded because Sanchez threw such a great game. You know, Granke threw a good game against the Yankees as well, but Sanchez and Corbin seem to be a little bit deeper than Granke and bullpen, <laughs> or whoever they throw out there, Peacock and Urquidy. Uh, uh, I mean, you know, that's just a little deeper. That doesn't mean I would pick the uh, the Nationals to win it because I think from top to bottom of the lineup, I think the Astros, you know, they just have a much more consistent, um, strong MVP type lineup. And I think over the course of a seven game series, that can really wear down your pitching. Um, obviously, they have a lot of faith. And I think I brought this statistic up, but all the outs by the uh, Nationals, I mean, all except two in the playoffs have been gotten by Scherzer, Strasburg, Corbin, Sanchez, and then Doolittle and Hudson. That's where they're getting all their outs. And and they may be able to stick to that in seven games. I just think the Astros, we talked about um, them taking a lot of 0-2 counts and going deep, Michael Brantley, all that. All that stuff that frustrated the Astros fans, you know, last series, hey, they got to jump on these pitches. They got to do it. I think with the Nationals only utilizing six, six to seven pitchers, I think all of that stuff could actually turn itself around um, and, and be an advantage for the Astros. And I, I don't know what you think. I, I wanted to say one more thought about the uh, the the job that Justin Berlander did. Obviously up 3-1, they went to him to close out the series. But seeing that game in the first inning, and I got some texts with some friends like, oh, Berlander, he's giving it up. He's struggling. Like, you know, look at it, and it's 4-1, I think it was, or 3-1, 4-1. And then how he threw the rest of that game. I mean, that's – people love to say, oh, yeah, he's a Cy Young Award winner, and he's going to win a World Series. That's why he is who he is, because you give up a three spot or a four spot. It was a four spot, three run homer and a, sing, a solo shot. You give up four runs in the first inning and you come out and throw seven scoreless after that. That's why you're a number one starter. And that, I think, uh, speaks volumes about who he is and, and who the team is. So, again, I think that the Nationals have a little deeper rotation probably from who they actually are going to put on the bump to start the game. But I can see the Astros wearing them down and wearing them thin. No, I think that's their goal is to try and wear those pitchers down and get those pitch counts up. I know that it is the World Series. They're going to be out there for, you know, maybe 15, 20 more pitches than they would normally throw during the regular season because right now it's it's all out. You give everything you've got as much as you've got for as long as you can before you get called out. And if if they're able to knock the starters out early within the first four to three to five innings, I think that would really benefit the Astros because then you start to see the middle part of that bullpen for the Washington Nationals, and that's where the issue is created. And it's the same way for the Houston Astros. If they're able to get Verlander and Cole to go six and seven, get Granke to go at least five, maybe six, then you avoid some of the weaknesses in both bullpens in the middle portion and push things back to those guys who are paid to shut games out. There was an interesting note that I saw in some of the bullet points that I get sent for these series. And talking about how good Scherzer and Strasburg are, th- talking about how good Garrett Cole and Justin Verlander are, how about Garrett Cole and Justin Verlander have struck out a combined 61 batters entering the World Series, while Max Scherzer and Steven Strasburg have fanned 60. The only duo, this is a great note, 
the only duo with more strikeouts in a postseason before the World Series all time is Verlander and Scherzer when they were rotation mates with the Detroit Tigers in 2013, where they combined for 65 strikeouts and they did not make it to the World Series. So there's some underlying, underlying storylines within here. And speaking of the rotations, talking about game one, it's Cole versus Scherzer. I wonder how, maybe not frustrated, or I wonder how Justin Verlander feels about not being the number one uh, starter, not in the sense that it's game one of the World Series, but in the sense that he doesn't get to face his old buddy, Max Scherzer, and have that epic rematch or reconnection of uh, Detroit Tigers of the past. I thought that was kind of an interesting number to look up. Yeah, I mean, that's that's hilarious, really, when you look at it. I mean, obviously, the two, the, the two kind of, uh alpha dogs in the rotation i guess they you know they have one a and one b but they used to be on the same team and they're the ones that hold the record is kind of cool i thought you were going to say something like drysdale and koufax i mean <laughs> i had no i really i didn't have any idea where you're going with that and scherzer and verlander now they're facing off against each other and i saw on twitter the uh interviews and i i really like that they did this i mean we want to be cutthroat we want to be we want to be tough on the field we're ult- ultimate competitors but they asked uh, the interview process. They asked guys uh, who their favorite guy was on the other team or who they admire, and that that was just a really you know I mean it was it wasn't like sentimental. It was kind of, it was cool to see like you know oh uh, uh, Zimmerman saying how much he likes Altuve because he remembers when Altuve came up and he saw him in the hotel. It was his first series, and Ryan Zimmerman was like, "Who's that guy?" You know that little guy. And I just think it's it's a neat way. Obviously, Scherzer and Verlander used to be teammates. They want to go out and kick the you know kick kick the crap out of each other but honestly i'm sure they have the utmost respect for each other and i really think it'll be neat to see how all this stuff plays out yep and i you know talking about uh, the rotation i think it's pretty evenly matched i agree on the depth of the nationals maybe giving them a little bit of an edge because of the bullpen day even though it worked out for the astros winning in game seven i think the defense heavily favors the houston astros i think they are just su- far superior at every single position as a team, as far as team defense is concerned, Juan Soto's a concern out there in left field. I wonder what they're going to do with Ryan Zimmerman, who's had his issues on defense. We saw the errors from Howie Kendrick at second base. So I think there's holes behind the Washington Nationals rotation as opposed to the Astros defense. Tuttle, who's got the edge on defense? Yeah, oh, for sure the Astros. Yeah. All right, we'll move on. Bullpen, who are you giving it to? Mm, yeah, so for sure depth-wise Astros. Uh, maybe if it's just Doolittle and Hudson, that might be uh, a formidable. But you know, you have Osuna and Presley and I, I and James down there. Yeah, I, I would say so. Defense to the Astros, uh, the bullpen towards the Astros, but slightly. Yeah, I'm with you on that, and I and I do agree with you in the sense that it is depth. I think they have they have better arms a little more consistently. You know, once you get past Hudson and Doolittle, who have been good matchup guys in closing games out. Then you start to get the only other guy I could really think of is the rainy right-handed hit, uh, pitcher that throws about 101 miles an hour. I think he might be the only other guy I've seen out of that bullpen. And then uh, obviously the ageless wonder, Fernando Rodney. So, I mean, there's four guys out of their bullpen that you can really maybe, you know, that we saw Davey Martinez go to in situations. And that's where I think it kind of favors the Astros a little bit. I think AJ has more options as far as matchups uh, in the middle portion of the game where that game may actually become win or lose in those middle parts where Davey Martinez is forced to use guys who haven't been used the entire postseason, it seems like. And then offense. 
this is where it gets a little interesting for me and I've, I've, I've done some digging on some of the, on some of the numbers just in the offense, because at the end of the regular season, obviously the Astros had 107 wins. The Washington nationals had 93 and the way the numbers matched up, the Astros are high slug, low strikeout, heavy on the home run, heavy on the on-base percentage, their OPS is off the charts, they're measuring up with the 1927 Murders Road, New York Yankees, and then all of a sudden we get to the playoffs and we see these guys get just shredded, and it's been a grind. They hit 179 in the American League Championship Series, yet were able to win. That is the second lowest batting average of a team to come out of the Championship Series. So that is a little concerning for me, but the number that I always harp on, and if you watch a lot of Astro games, and you hear me cut off TK every once in a while, it's talking about hitting with runners in scoring position. They, the analytics continue to try and find a clutch number. What's clutch? Is this clutch? Is it late in the game? Is it this? Is it that? For me, on just a real, you know, on the surface type number that's easy to comprehend and easy to put a mentality to and easy to put a number to, the hitting with runners in scoring position is my clutch stat. That is one thing when I played and maybe I was hitting two, 230 during the year, I wanted to have my risk number be a decent number where I could be counted on in tough situations. And that's a number where the Astros throughout the regular season were kind of middle of the road, about 260, 250, and maybe 10th or 12th in the major leagues with that number. And then you get to the playoffs and we talk about how hard it is for them to score runs. They hit into a ton of double plays, which is extremely frustrating, but they've won, won their games on home runs because their risk number hitting with runners in scoring position. And I don't know if I put Tuttle to sleep yet because I'm talking about the hitting, but the risk number is 175 as opposed to the Washington nationals who I think have played good enough defense great pitching and timely hitting and the timely hitting, which is hitting with runners in scoring position for the nationals three Oh eight. That's why their run totals are up. That's why they blew out the Cardinals and swept them and moved on. So I'm kind of, I'm a little concerned about where the offenses match up because regular season, I'm going Astros hands down in the postseason, I might be leaning a little bit towards the uh, Washington nationals. Yeah. Again, there's not much, there's not much, to dispute there, right? When we go defense, bullpen, offense, when we just look at the way the playoffs, I mean, you could give those statistics to anybody on the street and they'd be able to say, all right, we're going to lean this way. We're going to lean that way, I believe. And I think that, but that's why, you know, that's why you play the game. I think you're right. If the same teams that showed up in the last series show up in this game, then, you know, then it's going to be obviously a challenge, challenging series for the Astros specifically. But the Nationals have now had some time off. The Astros are the Astros. We talked about this with Jordan in the mailbag. The fact that 0 for 12 gets magnified. You know, that 179, is that really who the Astros are? Uh, and maybe the momentum's shifted a little bit, but we don't really know if that's who they are. I think overall, since we talked about the strengths, we know pitching and defense is where we go. So if the Astros can, you know, get into the Nationals' bullpen, you know, hitting 179 with running, runners in scoring position may not get you into the bullpen as quickly as you'd like. But maybe, like you said, some of the things that they showed in the 162-game season show up, and then we're having a different conversation. If if the game was just played based on these numbers, I think that obviously we're 100% accurate in terms of the Nationals have the edge kind of on the offense. But 
from top to bottom, one through nine, um, I, I believe the Astros, the way that they they take pitches and they battle and, you know, somebody like Springer, Springer's, you know, a, a, an MVP type candidate in the postseason usually, and he's been struggling and Brantley struggled a little bit early on. And, you know, he kind of came to, you know, came came out of his shell. So if they could get Jordan going the way he was going in the regular season, we're, we're having a different discussion. So I just think the Nationals, I mean, obviously, Howie, uh, Howie Kendrick's a professional hitter. Um, Turner's good. They have Soto. You said Zimmerman. Right? He's battling some things. So it's, you know, it's on paper. It certainly looks like the Nationals have a slight edge. I would not want to face the Astros lineup day in, day out from top to bottom. And uh, and I think that's what's going to make this a wonderful World Series. I mean, I, I don't, we don't know what's going to happen. But uh, if the 162-game season is, is any indicator, then uh, I think you got to kind of lean towards the Astros. Yeah, I'm incredibly excited about this World Series because it could be potentially be a situation where the Astros, all of a sudden, they get to where they want to be in the World Series, and all of a sudden, that can of whoop-ass opens up, and they go ahead and relax and become who they were during the regular season, and they can attack some of these pitchers. Uh, but it, to be determined, you know, that's why you play the game, and that's why I think it's such an intriguing matchup. There's two players, one from each side, who have had great starts to the postseason, Anthony Rendon is an interesting case just because he is a local boy done good, and he's coming back home to Houston where he's hit 450 against the Astros in his career, 450 in Minute Maid Park with a couple of home runs. But he is slashing a 375 uh, batting average, 465 on base percentage, and almost a 600 slugging percentage with five extra base hits. He's got a home run, four doubles, seven RBIs, obviously the big home run against Kershaw to get them back in that ball game, But he has done a very good job. Jose Altuve on the other side is slashing a 349 batting average, 417 on base. And how about this? Smallest guy in the big leagues. This dude is hitting 767 for a slugging percentage with five home runs in the postseason so far. And he's literally been, the, I mean, other than a couple of home runs here and there by George Springer and a couple other guys, he has been the offense. Can Altuve continue the dominance? Is Rendon going to continue to have the kind of success? But, uh, you know, I'm excited to see what those guys are able to do. And Altuve is one of the guys, and I'm hopefully someday everybody gets to meet Jose Altuve. You know, when we get to Anaheim, I, I strongly urge Tuttle to get with me and show up early and get on the field and hopefully meet this guy because he's one of the finest human beings you're ever going to meet. And I know I call him adorable and people are like, ah, why would you call a ball player adorable? It's because I want him to be cloned and replicated throughout the universe because all of a sudden the world would be a better place. And then you put on top of that the ability to go out there and play the game. So Altuve is one of my favorites. And the early the early MVP contender for me, um, is there anybody you're looking at in this series, Tuttle, that might be your wild card? Or do you expect maybe the, the, the common name, the Rendon or the Altuve to be the guy that steps up? Or are there any wild cards in there that you might be trying to key on to see if they have a chance to turn this series around? You know, I think I look at it a little bit differently, and I don't know why, but uh, when you take like an Altuve and a Rendon, those guys kind of cross each other out in my book, right? So, you you know, a Correa and, uh, you know, maybe Zimmerman, I'll put them in Zimmerman's category, or Kendrick, because Correa is not hitting as well, but defense, like what they mean to the team. So throw those guys out. And, you know, Bregman. So there's a guy we haven't talked about the whole podcast. Who Who's the equivalent for Bregman? If, if Altuve and Rendon get crossed out, maybe Soto and Bregman. So which one of those guys is going to have a series? And that's what it comes down to. So it doesn't even have to be a big name guy, but you start crossing these guys out. 
um, how they match up with the pitchers and all that stuff's great. I, I think Reddick's always a sneaky guy because I, I've, you know, I haven't admired Reddick from afar. I, he reminds me of Perzinski a little bit. Like he's kind of the guy you don't want to face. I don't like his attitude at the plate from a pitching perspective. You look at him, but he's super confident and he's a good hitter. He's a professional hitter. He's some, you know, he sometimes takes the approach. Uh, he looks like a Brantley up there in terms of he's quiet and he's just kind of waiting for his pitch. And so I, I think, I think the guys that we all know about, I mean, I don't think I've ever seen Altuve go into a slump. Same with Rendon. Those guys don't really slump. They're going to give you, you know, an, another guy like that's Turner in LA. Like these guys are the guys you do not want to face with the game on the line. So somebody like AJ Hinch would walk Rendon. And then who do you have? Is it Soto or is it Zimmerman or who's the guy that's going to do, you know, that's going to do the damage. And I think I would lean towards somebody like a Reddick, a Correa or a Springer to kind of revert to what we've seen in the postseason. They have the experience. And I think one of those guys could make a big difference. I mean, look at, look at Correa, the two defensive plays with the home run that kind of gave them edge, the edge against the Yankees. And that could really flip the whole series if you have a guy like that. So I don't know who the Nationals have. Trey Turner's another guy who, I mean, he's kind of flies under the radar. You got Rendon and Zimmerman and Soto and all these guys. Trey Turner's no one to laugh at. He's fast. He's got some pop. Hits at the top of the order. So, I mean, I, I, I haven't dug into the nitty-gritty of the stats in terms of how they do against Garrett Cole or how, how, how are you when you face Scherzer because these guys are the cream of the crop on the bump. But, you know, I'm going to look at somebody like a Reddick, a Correa, uh, a Trey Turner, some, one, of, one or two of those guys. Guys like that are going to turn the series one way or the other. And it's, as we said, I mean, the whole reason we're having this conversation and the reason that you know, we've got followers as people appreciate what we have to say. And, but most of it's just an educated guess or an opinion, honestly. Yeah, but that's part of the fun, too, is that we have the opportunity to get that out there and stir the pot a little bit and get people thinking. I like the call of Reddick because I really feel like, you know, the, the, the bottom part of the Astros order has got to do a little bit something to turn the lineup over because that's if you're going to relax and not that any pitcher relaxes during a playoff stretch. But if you're going to find a place to try and go get some outs or maybe relax a little bit, it's the bottom third of the order against the Houston Astros. It's Jordan, Maldonado, or Trinos, and then Josh Reddick, Tucker, Marisnik, whoever it's going to be at the bottom part of the order. And that's where you start to see guys maybe get on mistakes or get a little bit better pitch to hit. And Reddick has gotten a couple pitches to hit. I think he's really chomping at the bit to have an opportunity to be on the big stage and become Mr. Relevant not Mr. Irrelevant where he's been. So I think that kind of plays into it. This is a big stage, a big opportunity, and maybe a chance for him to thrust himself into the spotlight by getting some big hits. He's been playing great defense and a couple of timely hits. Uh, I like the Trey Turner call, actually. Trey Turner, I like him as a ball player. I think he's kind of one of those feisty, nasty, old-school, top-of-the-order type guys that just goes out there, will foul off some tough pitches, look ugly for three swings, and then all of a sudden, doink one to right. And you're like, damn it, how did that guy get on? And then once he gets on, he creates all kinds of issues with his wheel. He can, wheels. He can score on a, on a ball in the gap from first base. He can steal a bag. He can steal third. He's always a threat, and I think that's where it makes pitchers uncomfortable, and maybe you, you leave one out over the plate. So Trey Turner's the guy on the national side for me. I would love to see Jordan turn it around, but I haven't seen enough for to, to see that. But this World Series is usually when George Springer shows up like he did in 2017. So Springer, Reddick, 
And then Trey Turner for me on the other side is one of those guys that I really see stepping up and maybe being one of those key factors in turning the series one way or the other. So we've got in game one, Garrett Cole, Max Scherzer. We haven't seen the lineups yet. Who you got, Tuttle? Game one. Minute Maid Park, I'm taking the Astros. Garrett Cole. Garrett Cole hasn't lost in 14 starts, I believe. So last time I think I misspoke, but he hasn't lost in 14 starts. He's going to be throwing yep. a few hundos up there. It's hard not to go with the home team in game one. That does not mean that the series will turn their way, but it's always good to get a W, and, and it's hard to root against Garrett Cole. Completely agree. It's going to be an amazing matchup. I can't wait to see how fired up Scherzer is pitching in his first World Series, I believe. He's going to be bringing the noise, too. But I'm with you in the Garrett Cole sense. He's going to have that a couple of extra days rest. The arm is going to be fired up. The adrenaline is going to be pumping. The juice box is going to be closed. It's going to be loud as can be in there because that's how these guys like to play. And I agree with you that the Astros are going to be victorious. I believe it's going to be something in the range of a 5-2 to two game. But I also believe, you know, Scherzer's one of those guys like Verlander throughout the regular season that got kind of snake bit by the long ball by leaving a couple pitches out of the plate. So I think he's going to leave two or three pitches out there, and the Astros are going to jump him for home runs in game one. Five to two Astros. Garrett wins. Game two, you've got Verlander against Strasburg. Tuttle, I'm going to put it on you first. Yeah, I didn't know I was even going to go a score. You said with Scherzer. That's great. That was five to two. I like the call. That's just me. You know. Yeah, that's just me being hyper aggressive. I can see it being three to one, but for the same reason, you know, a two run shot off a hung pitch. Mm -hmm. But uh, so game two, hmm, you can't go against Verlander at home, can you? I mean, this is how it leans. I mean, Strasburg's been dealing, so I'm gonna call a tie game. Do they have ties in baseball? I'm not really sure. I mean, we can do that. I'm kind of kidding. I mean, I can see Strasburg and Verlander being in a one one game in the eighth inning, and again, we, we go down to the bullpen here and see see what happens, especially if the Astros win the first game. Um, Strasburg did a really good job in the playoffs, uh, following up a loss and just really did a good job shutting down the Dodgers. So, um, I do see a pitcher's duel tomorrow, maybe even more so than today. Like you said, you called five to two. So I guess we're on the same uh, par for the same course. I think Verlander's going to, whatever he used to get through six or seven innings after the four spot, he's going to start out with adrenaline. He's going to keep those guys off balance from the get go. And, uh, yeah, I, I I don't know. I, I'm going to say coin toss in game two, but it's going to be a pitcher's duel late. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I, I truly believe that it is, Strasburg has really stepped up and impressed me in the postseason. I thought he has pitched phenomenally, and he's pitched well on the road too, which is uh, interesting to me. It's going to be a little bit of a hostile environment at Minute Maid Park for him. And I, this is, I think that's that game is going to be a lot of fun to watch because they're very similar as far as style. They're very similar in the ability to go out there and get the swing and miss. They're hyper competitive. I think that may be one of those games where both starting pitchers go seven innings, have ten strikeouts apiece, and maybe give up one or two runs. It could be two two at the end of seven, and then we go into that bullpen game type situation. And then who do you have? So I think that game two is a bit of a wash for me. I want to go out there and say Justin Verlander is just going to blow up and shove because his last time out, he got roughed up a little bit and he wants to really establish himself in this world series. And it's going to be tough. I think it's going to be a tie ball game through seven innings and then we'll play it by ear after that. But as far as the series is concerned, who do you have winning and how many games do you have this thing going overall Tuttle? Yeah, that's great. I love the prediction aspect. I, I always wonder why sports talk people do the predictions, but I mean, I guess that's why we're here to give an educated guess. 
Uh, I really have no idea. I, I really like to take the hot team at the end of the year. And honestly, I, I mentioned this last podcast, the Nationals were 19 and 31 to start the year. And so you take that 19 and 31 out and then you start doing the numbers. They're not a 107 win team, but you know, holy smokes, they had the, they, they finished the year in, a, in, in fine fashion. Um, so I can't see the Astros knocking them out. I think this series as so simple as it as it can be, just like my betting style, I think it comes down to home field advantage, which gives me the Astros in six or seven. I want to say Astros in seven, maybe. Yeah, I think that's actually a really good call. And some of the friends that I've been talking to and some of the people around the game have said this is going to be a very good, very competitive series. I completely agree on that. The game seven by Tuttle. Did you say Astros winning home field advantage? I think that's a huge key. Yeah, Astros, they have home field advantage. They win in seven. Yeah. Um, and also an interesting note that we haven't talked about, I have the Astros winning in six. I think it's going to be the Cole Verlander show. I think those games, they win. They're highly competitive in the other ones, but I think it's going to be the Cole Verlander show, and they go out there and win all four of those games. And, but it's going to be six games. They win on their home turf, like Tuttle said. I believe it's going to come back to Minute Maid Park. Uh, but here's an interesting note. So teams that have swept a best of seven league championship series, which is what the Washington Nationals did to the St. Louis Cardinals. So a little bit longer layoff coming into the World Series. Teams that have swept a best of seven league championship series are one and seven in the World Series all time. Advantage Astros. For sure. And and it's funny because it's it sounds a little counterintuitive, but that is actually my point about the hot team coming in. It's not the hot team that's like, we won 4-0 and we're going to sit on our couch. It's the hot team that's playing every day, that relies on each other, that knows who they have, right? They're in the foxhole together for you know lack of a better term. And 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 so to your point, although I said, you know, the hot team, you know, I'm still the Astros have been continuing to play. They play for each other. They know all that stuff. So, you know, I guess all I'm saying is I do think the Nationals are the hot team after beating the Dodgers and playing the Cardinals. But I think the layoff and the media and, the, you know, it's not Super Bowl Sunday. It's not the, you know, they don't have that week off necessarily. But I do think some of that fuel and some of that fire and some of that kind of the the energy that the Nationals have had could just be quelled by the five days off they've had. And I think, again, that, that would just lean toward the Astros, which is why I take them in seven. But but I would agree with you. I mean, it sounds counterintuitive to say, I'm ta- I like the hot team, so I'm going to take this team. But the Nationals may, may you know, they might have cooled off a little bit. So that, that, that sounds perfectly normal to me. No, I agree. And the hardest thing when you have that time off, and I hate to bring up 2005 again, kind of, but we, we beat the – Angels, I don't know if they were Los Angeles Angels, California Angels, Anaheim, I don't know what the heck their name was at the time. But in 2005, we beat the Angels in five, and we had a good six or seven days off. And we faced, we had sim games against our bullpen, trying to keep everybody in, in shape and keep everybody in rhythm. But we lucked out because we opened at home. So we didn't have to travel. We knew the environment. We weren't going to be overwhelmed. And I think that's where it's a little bit different for the Nationals coming into this World Series. Yes, they swept the Cardinals, looked amazing like Tuttle was talking about. And I agree. If the Astros had swept and then they started the World Series a little bit sooner or they had the same amount of layoff, you might say it's even. But I think the Astros have the advantage because they played a little bit longer, the layoff has been less, and they're in their home stadium. 
that's where I think the home field advantage is really going to pay off too, because the Nationals have kind of been sitting at home going, where are we going to go? Are we going to go down the road to New York? Or are we going to go head down to you know the state of Texas and play the Astros? And as soon as they figure that out, they fly in, maybe get in a little bit late. I don't know what their schedule was. They're, they're going to have workouts in a new environment that they haven't seen in a while. But when you show up and you, you know, Trey Turner digs into that box, you, the one thing you cannot replicate, obviously, in practice or in some of these simulated games is atmosphere. You know, we hear about football teams trying to do it all the time, loudspeakers, noise. How do you control it? How do you, you know, work inside that environment? It doesn't replicate having 43,000 rabid opposing fans yelling at you. It, and then all of a sudden, you it feels like they're, you know, swelling up and, co- you know, covering you. And then you got to face a hundo coming out of the pitcher's hand. So I think that's where the advantage lies with the Astros and where home field advantage really steps up for them. That is all we've got for that World Series matchup. And speaking of predictions, speaking of prognostications, thinking about betting, wait, don't bet on it is usually what we call it. And Tuttle has had himself another very good week. What do you got, Tuttle? Yeah, so I won two out of three again. And I'm thinking I just went to Vegas and, and won a little money. And I keep calling it don't bet on it. But, you know, I, I, I'm expecting the mailbag people to call me and tell me, hey, I didn't bet on it. And now I'm feeling really good about myself. But uh, that hasn't happened yet. We'll see. You're, you're getting cocky. Oh, yeah, I'm getting cocky. And it's so funny because you put me on the spot trying to predict the World Series. And anytime you have to put all these statistics and analytics and all this stuff in there, it's like it's very difficult to make a pick. It's so much easier to make the pick the way I do, which is, all right, yeah, this line looks a little stinky and everybody's betting over here, so I'm going to go there. So we won BYU. They won outright. They beat Boise State 28-25. Mm-hmm. I had BYU plus seven. We won that one. Big money. And then we won the Packers. And I did use a statistic on that because, remember, I gave up points. I gave up four and a half points. I like taking the points. But there was a statistic, God forbid, folks, I use statistics every once in a while when I like them, that uh, the team following a Monday night win at home is going to play at home the next week. They're like 27-2 and or something. So I watched Aaron Rodgers go out and pound the Raiders, and that was good. And then the Bengals, of course, the lowly old Bengals. I guess when you're betting on the Bengals, then two out of three ain't bad because I just thought, you know, the Bengals plus some points. They haven't won yet. They're going to keep the game close. They're at home. And they look terrible. They look terrible. And I know they have a young coach. He looks like a teenager, just like the Packers do. But, man, I, you know, they, may, they might have to uh, make some changes there already. They had Marvin Lewis. You know, you, you know this, too, playing sports for so long. You, gotta, you should appreciate what you had when you had it, right? I mean, that's kind of how it goes. Marvin Lewis takes them to the playoffs. They don't win any games. They're like, we don't like that. Now you're 0-6. Now you're going for the first pick in the draft. So we'll have to see if the Bengals ever come up on the betting chart again. They're going to have to win eventually. So we'll see how that goes. And then, of course, our fantasy football. The, you know, the don't bet on segment always has fantasy football in there. And we, again, 6-1. and one. Did some damage with Nick Chubb on the bench. Chubb gets some mention every week, but yeah, with no Chubb at all, we win. We win a fantasy football game. So that's that's where we go if we don't bet on it. We're gonna be back later in the week, and uh, I'll give you some more picks, folks. So start paying attention to don't bet on it because you could uh, you could make a little bit of money. That's outstanding. And yes, the fantasy football team has been going well. And what. Tuttle failed to mention in there is that we are numero uno. We are at the top of the heap in our fantasy football 
uh, league that we're in. It has been very good, and it's amazing that you can have so much success minus a chub. But, you know, we find a way to grind through that and actually make it happen. That's going to do it for Don't Bet On It. Make sure you stay tuned to Bleacher Blums because later in the week we will probably hop back on here after these next two games in the World Series and update the World Series and also give you some more teams that we we will say for the time being, don't bet on it. But the, as, as consistent as Tuttle is, it may turn into bet on it. <laughs> but put minimal bets on there. And again, everything you do is on your own. You can't blame us for nothing. We are just a couple of voices coming at you through the podcast, but we love doing it. I've got a quick blum and blummer. So game one is going to be exciting, and it's going to get off to a great start. First pitch is going to be thrown out by ex-Astro Brian McCann. It is going to be thrown to Evan McGaddis, and they are the teammates formerly known as Brevin McGaddis, because if you took off their hats and showed their bald skulls and their beards, you probably couldn't separate them. So a couple of great personalities, great ball players coming back to reinvigorate that 2017 run the Astros had. And I have been getting a lot of requests on Twitter because when Brian McCann left the Houston Astros, my, my most famous so far and my best call of a home run has been with Brian McCann. And it came from the movie Anchorman, Ron Burgundy at the beginning of the movie, you know, I'm I'm kind of a big deal. And then he has breaking news and he proceeds to jump into the pool doing a cannonball. And I kind of spun it into Brian McCann's name. And with can being at the end, I said McCannonball. And I kind of was like, you know, a little nervous about bringing that out. And sure enough, he hits that home run and I went all in. So this is for all of the Brian McCann fans. This is for Brian McCann, who has announced his retirement on a phenomenal career had won a World Series with the Houston Astros in 2017, and he will be at game one tonight. So for all of you listening to this podcast, roll down the windows, crank up the volume, and one last time, we are going to get a home run call for Brian McCann. And usually it went out of the stadium, and I would stop TK mid-sentence, and I'd say, Todd, we've got breaking news. There's been a ball launched into the seats off the bat of Brian McCann. McCann! God, that felt good. And there it is. The last McCannon ball you probably will ever hear right here on Bleacher Blum. So sweet retirement to Brian McCann. I look forward to seeing him throw out that first pitch to Evan Gaddis tonight for game one of the World Series. You got anything else for me, Tuttle? I think that's going to do it for us here on Bleacher Blums, man. That's going to do it. That's the first time I've ever heard the McCannon ball shout and, uh, and maybe the last, but I'm going to have to rewind that a few times. And any anchor man line is, uh, is, is, uh, available to us on this podcast. Uh, I, I will always appreciate that. So that's great. Hopefully, uh, Brian gets a chance to listen to this and hopefully he and, uh, Evan get the crowd all riled up tonight. Yeah, I hope they do too. It is going to be a great game one with the World Series back in Houston. Everybody is excited about it. With this podcast ending, of course, we want to send a shout out to first responders. Uh, you had an interesting story this week that I'm not going to tell anybody because it's a personal family story, but uh, we know that first responders work extremely hard. They do a great job and we have benefited personally from that situation. So thank you to all the EMTs around Houston, around the nation. Thank you for all the military that are out there. And uh, there, on a somber note, I want to mention a, an umpire's name. His name is Eric Cooper, and he passed away this last week at the age of 52. And Coop, 
was a very good umpire. He was a very good man. He was a lot of fun to talk to on the on the on the ball field. He was always a a very competitive natured, very fair natured on the field. But sad news in the baseball world with Eric Cooper, a 20 year veteran, I believe, of Major League Baseball as far as umpires are concerned passed away last week at the age of 52. And I'm sure the Astros will do a good job in remembering him, hopefully throughout this World Series. With that being said, we're gonna tell you to get after it, but most of all, believe it. <laughs>